Again, the book of Exodus. And here, now we're on chapter 24. We're on chapter 19 last week. We're skipping over the Ten Commandments. How dare I do that? <laughs> because I, 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 I can't get bogged down, I'm afraid, in the Ten Commandments, as great as they are. They're a sermon series all of their own. And uh, after the Ten Commandments, there's a kind of an exposition of what these Ten Commandments look like in normal day-to-day life in uh, chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus. And uh, yeah, it deals with uh, different aspects of that covenant, and we'll get to that. What you ought to know, though, is that Thematically, if you could look at the text of chapter 19 and then look at uh, the text of Exodus 24, there's a connection between them. In other words, Moses, in, in composing the book, has deliberately connected chapter 19 where God descends upon the mountain and chapter 24 where Moses ascends to meet with God. In fact, it's not just Moses, although Moses and Joshua, they go up kind of through the glory cloud and they stay up there um, you know to to get all of the pattern of the tabernacle and everything else that comes in the, the ensuing chapters until they come down and they see that Israel has done what made a golden calf and you know done their own thing but uh, also we'll see that the elders of Israel also go up and they get a a, a vision of God. It's the most extraordinary thing. It's one of those, those texts that you kind of read and you, you kind of keep reading, but you wonder what you've just read. So extraordinary it was. And it's even more so because two of the people that saw God were, look at verse 1 of chapter 24, Nadab and Abihu. Now, who are Nadab and Abihu when they're at home? Do you, do you recognize those names? Probably not. But you would if you read on in the book of Numbers. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron. They were next in line to the high priesthood. And in the book of Numbers, they decided to take it upon themselves to offer Strange fire, as it's called, to God. Numbers 10. Strange fire, what does that mean? Well, that's, it's the, in the offerings, the incense offerings to God that he talks about in these books, you had to do a particular kind of incense offering. It wasn't just, you know, a bit of this, a bit of that. Uh, yeah, let's throw a bit of this in. Uh, this smells good. Uh, well, we don't have any of that, so let's just replace it with this, and let's just... Give it to God. You know, it wasn't that kind of an idea. It was particular things that were acceptable to God. And this was a, 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 an object lesson from God. And many of these things are object lessons about paying attention to details in what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable to God. Even, by the way, the, the stipulation, which seems to be rather silly, that uh, you don't have a certain kind of cloth with another kind of cloth. And you think, well, why, why? What's the point of that? That was to show that you have to make uh, distinguishing uh, 
uh, judgments between certain things. And it was just a kind of a picture, a pattern of that, as well as a practical uh, aspect of that too, certain things rip. But uh, everything that God does, it had a purpose to it. And particularly if you're offering up in worship on behalf of Israel, incense which uh, refer to the prayers of the nation rising up to God. Well, Nadab and Abihu decided, you know, well, you know, we'll, we'll cook our own. We'll get our own recipe together. We'll put our own stuff in there, and we'll just put that in front of God's nose. Do any of you know the story now? What did God do? He burned them up, yes. Fire came out of the altar and burned them and killed them for their presumption, their presumption in the worship of God. And even though we're, we're not going to go to that, uh, that chapter, I debated about kind of putting it in this series, but it doesn't really fit, so I thought, no, we will not talk about it too much. But it was a sober reminder, a sober reminder that God is to be worshipped in the way that God wants to be worshipped. It's not for us to make it up and hope that he likes it. So Nadab and Abihu go up and look at verse 9 of chapter 24. Moses went up also, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles and the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Nadab and Abihu did that, and then what are they doing? Down the road. trying to worship that God in a way that he has said, don't do it. That is unacceptable to him. So when you read about that in Numbers 10, you think, well, that was a bit harsh, you know, going and burning them up like that. Now I think you perhaps understand. God's serious about this. Because this has knock-on effects to those that are watching. Now what about these stipulations then? From chapter 20, where you have those ten commandments, the ten words of, of God, and you know those, through to that exposition of the commandments, which uh, begin at chapter 21, talks about laws for servants, how you treat servants, uh, then talks about Acts of violence, because people fight, people you know, are wicked, people do nasty things to each other and hurt each other. Laws about animals, because we're supposed to be stewards of the world. We're supposed to look after animals. Property, private property. God believes in private property, and so we need to be respectful of other people's property. Then moral codes. I'm not going to, certainly not going to read that passage to you, but that passage deals with all of the immorality that even people who have seen and heard God 
on the mount may still revert to justice for those that are weak and then the Sabbaths and the feasts for Israel. All of these things are crammed within these chapters and all of them grow out of the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments, of course, absolutely vital because those commandments speak about the character of God and how the character of God is to be reflected in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our lives. And we come up against those Ten Commandments and we do not do well against them, do we? Not if we're honest with ourselves. Do we, do we have other gods before God, the true God? Are there other things that we put ahead of him? Yes, we certainly do, and yes, we have. And if we've done it once, then we've broken that law. We've also broken the Tenth Commandment, because that kind of comes back around and goes back to the first again, the covetousness. Covetousness is basically putting something as an idol. We must have this. We We want this so badly. It's burning. It's a desire, and it's more important than God. Idols, everybody else, every other nation, everything that they were familiar with in the world around them was full of idols. And that was the way it was in the ancient world up until uh, the Christianity really broke that mold in the Middle Ages. And, of course, there were still statues and stuff that were uh, worshipped at that time. Idolatry has been the default position of human beings. It's not you know, just because we don't experience a lot of uh, statues and images that people worship in the West anymore doesn't mean that that's the way that it has been. Normally, people have made statues of things and they have worshipped them. And many people still do. And just because we haven't made statues... And worship them doesn't mean that we're off the hook for that commandment either. Because we do worship other things. We do serve and do obeisance for other things that take the place of God in our lives. And we have to watch for that one. And they're not going over all ten, but uh, God is concerned about the family unit. Honor your father and mother. If you want long life, you better honor your father and mother. You say, well, my, honor, my mother and father are not very honorable. It's not got to do with that. It's got to do with the fact that they're your parents and you should honor them. Just like you would honor the badge of a policeman or, uh, you know, somebody in uniform. Then these moral codes about lying and stealing and committing adultery and these other things. These all have to do with the the way that we are towards God, who hates lying, who hates stealing, who hates uh, adultery. And the way that we 
are towards our brothers and sisters, our fellow man. If we steal from somebody, what are we basically doing? We're saying we don't love them. We're saying that you don't matter. This thing that I want, that's, that's more important. If we lie to them, and this is in general, okay, there are exceptions that I'll talk about in a second. But in general, if we lie to somebody, what are we doing? We're manipulating them. We're treating them as a, the truth here is not something you need. I'd rather skirt around it just to protect my sin. There are, I believe, uh, I think it's biblical to say that there are times in Scripture when if you lie, if you tell a falsehood, you're actually on the truth side. And if you tell the truth, you're actually on the falsehood side. Can you think of a, a situation where that might be? Sorry? Rahab. Rahab is an example of that. She's in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But she told an untruth, didn't she? But whose side was she on? The side of truth or the side of error? That's the thing. What about uh, Cory Temboon? Knock on the door. Do you have any Jews here? Oh, sure I do. They're in the back there. Trape them off to a concentration camp. Told the truth. What did the truth do? The truth was told to agents of falsehood. Do you see? Truth didn't win out. Falsehood won, won out. Lies won out. Violence won out. Do you have any... Jews here? No. You protect them. You protect them. That's the side of the truth against evil. Do you see? Why, why is this necessary? Well, because of the world we live in. Okay? The world we live in. I could go into that a lot more, but that's not what my sermon is about today. These stipulations, all of these different stipulations, the people say in verse 3, if you look here, all the people answered in the middle of verse 3, with one voice and said all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And again in verse 9, oh sorry, verse 8, after they've been sprinkled with the blood, which we'll see in a moment, we have the same thing. No, sorry, verse 7. All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. No, you won't. And they didn't. But I can understand why they said this. I mean, again, look at the picture. Look at the, the situation they were in. They were right in front of a mountain. They'd seen, um, they had seen all of the plagues that God had brought upon Egypt, they had seen the Red Sea part and they'd gone through on dry land. How about that for a a miracle? They had seen God uh, 
look after them, give them food and drink through their sojourn. And here they are now in Midian, before the mound of God, and there it's firing, fiery like a furnace. It's burning. There's this trumpet sound. There is God on top of the mountain. They are hearing with their own ears the voice of the Almighty God. Uh, all you, you said, I'll do. Well, what are you going to say? No, I'm not going to do any of that. Okay? Obviously, because of the situation, because of the experience, they're going to say this. They're going to be rash. Because it is rash, folks. God understands this, which is why there is a a ceremonial aspect to this, and that that, uh, he's going to talk about the tabernacle and the altar and offerings for sin, that comes right after these chapters. But really, all of these, all of these things we're going to do, the Ten Commandments, you're going to do all of those, are you? You're never going to lie. You're never going to have an impure thought. You're never going to put something ahead of God, not even yourself. Come on, who are we trying to fool here? Do we know ourselves? You see, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to not lie to ourselves. We are not capable of keeping these rules. We're not capable of keeping the Ten Commandments, and we're not capable of doing all of the things in society that the Ten Commandments dictate that we should do. We very often put our own interests in front of other people. We very often, there are situations that arise where, yes, if we had a few moments more, if we had a slightly less heated situation, we might respond in a better way. But that's not the reality. That's not the situation. The situation is that somebody's getting our goat, somebody's pressing our buttons and it won't stop, somebody has taken something that from us and hurt us somebody's irritated us you know what it's like this is life and then all of these all the the better way to respond to this is all going to be just like God would no because you're not God and you can't keep these commandments you ought to so should I you ought to But you're not capable of keeping them all the time. And guess what? You need to keep them all the time. I mean, every single single moment of my life, every single thought, yes, I'm afraid so. And if you don't, who do you answer to? The fiery God on the mountain. There he is. He's pretty frightening. Okay? I mean, they are scared. They ask that Moses go and represent them, the people, and that, that just 
Moses and God talk together rather than hearing the voice of God. It is frightening. God said, don't go on the mountain, you'll die. Can't come up. He's coming down and he's coming down. He's not coming down like a Jesus with his arms open. Not like in the prodigal son, ready to uh, take the reprobate back. No, he's coming down in fire like a furnace. And yet they're going to make a covenant with this God. Because this covenant, which is uh, called the Sinaitic Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, this covenant, you see, is a, a unique covenant when it comes to the covenants that God makes. All of the other covenants, the covenant with Noah, okay? God says, I'm going to bring a flood over the whole world is going to destroy everything and everyone. Noah's response? Okay. I mean, what's he going to do? God's, God's not said, hey, you can, I'll sign this part, okay, and you sign that part, and we'll just agree together. There's no agreement. Okay, God just says... Hey, this is what's going to happen. Build an ark or you're going to drown. The Abrahamic covenant. You, Abraham, he calls him, okay? Brings him into the land. Then swears a covenant to him in chapters 12 through 22. To do with the descendants, the physical descendants through Sarah, who's barren. And the land... And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. What does Abraham do? Abraham, in chapter 15, is fast asleep. God makes the covenant. There's no agreement, folks. Abraham doesn't say, oh, yeah, that sounds okay to me. There's no, it's like, the only agreement is that, yes, God, I know that that's what you're going to do. Do you see? which is hardly an agreement. That's what's called a unilateral covenant, that God makes it and he, in a sense, imposes it for good upon those he makes it with. That's not what the Mosaic Covenant is. The Mosaic Covenant is, I will do this and you will do this. And the, this that they have to do is... Ten Commandments and everything that stems from the Ten Commandments. It's called the Book of the Covenant. And they sign off on it. Okay, yeah, we'll do, you do that? Yes. And we'll do this. All of these things. Not a good idea. You see, when Paul, later on, of course, tries to explain grace over against law, what he's doing is saying, look, you either are under this kind of a covenant where God will do the, his part if you do your part and your parts you can't do. Or you have another covenant. 
where it's kind of like the Noahic covenant, yes? Where God says, I'm just going to do this. And all you have to do is accept it. Believe it. And God gives you the benefits of that covenant. By grace. Yes, these commandments are good. And we should have them up in our courtrooms and we should have them in our classrooms and we should teach them to ourselves and to our children. But we shouldn't fool ourselves that we can do them. They are things to aspire to. There are things that correct our behavior and our thinking. They act in that way, but we can't do them, folks. Okay? Okay, let's have a look at... uh, at the sacrifices that went on because this, uh, this agreement that the, the, uh, and this is an agreement. Many, many of the God's covenants are not agreements, but this is an agreement that the children of Israel are going into. They, um, they are, are, are making it a solemn ceremony. Verse four. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So everybody's involved in this uh, or included in it. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord, the one on the mountain there. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Just quickly on the the sacrifices here in verses 4 and 5. What this meant was that the people in in, uh, offering these offerings to God are willing participants in this covenant with God. And they're showing it by offering a covenant sacrifice. This is, this is what the, the sacrifice is. It's a covenant sacrifice. It's the ratification of everything God has just said to them. And the idea is that uh, they're, into, they're entering, yes, a blood covenant with God. And the life of the flesh is in the blood. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 and how this uh, was sealed. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. The altar here is, stands for the God on the mountain, yes? So he's sprinkling the blood on, the, on the, the altar. So you're part of the covenant, God. Is he going to keep his part of the covenant? Not a problem. He's got the character. He's got the power. He's got the, the, the goodness. Everything that he's just stipulated is uh, an outgrowth of his own holiness. And then Moses sprinkles the blood on the people. At least the ones in the front row. Can they do it? Can they, can they keep the covenant? 
Are they prepared for this? Whether they're prepared or not, that blood goes on them. And um, Hebrews tells us also that Moses sprinkled the, the book that he'd written out when he was recording this. All these things that God said. And that sprinkle was, was sprinkled with blood too. This was binding on the people. I would not want to be bound by these rules. Now, going back quickly to the Ten Commandments, let's, let's just review some of them quickly. So, is it ever uh, acceptable to God to have other gods before him? Ever. So that's a universally binding covenant, yes? That's a, and, and whether you're in that covenant or whether you're in the new covenant, that's universally binding on you. It's never okay. Is it ever okay to commit adultery? No, it's a universal rule. It's a universal law. Is it ever okay to covet? No. What about the Sabbath? The Sabbath is different, you see, which is why the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament as a commandment. The only one. Why? Because the Sabbath, as we will see later, is a sign that is given by God to Israel. But more of that later on. We're not to keep the Sabbath. This is not the Sabbath, folks. Okay, this is the first day of the week. If we're trying to keep the Sabbath, we are putting ourselves under the law. Do you see that? So you need to be careful about that. This covenant is loaded with rules which are beyond our power to keep. God, in making this covenant, is distant. He's there as a fiery God on the mountain. He's not approachable. That's the God of the law. That's the God of the Mosaic covenant, folks. You try and approach to him, approach him by your works. Forget it. You're going to end up in that fire. Let's flip over very quickly to Hebrews chapter 9 here and see a little more teaching on this. Hebrews chapter 9. We have seen then that this is a covenant that Israel cannot keep. I will say that because God is gracious and because of the Abrahamic covenant that is made with the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is with Israel, when Israel fail repeatedly to keep the Mosaic covenant, they are still kept by the grace of God through the Abrahamic covenant. Therefore, Israel has a future. 
In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer here expounds this a little bit. He says in verse 16, and we'll go back to this. We, when we went through Hebrews, we kind of expounded this. We'll come back to this. I don't have time for these to ex, uh, expound verses 16 and 17. But it says, for where there is a testament, that's a wrong translation. It should be covenant, okay? Where there is a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the covenant and means the covenant animal, the, the ratification of the covenant, okay? For a covenant is in force after men are dead. That's why they want to put testament in there, because they think it's a last will and testament. That's not what last will and testaments were like in the ancient world, and it's a mistranslation. Since it has no power at all while the testator lives, or while the covenant lives. In other words, what you need is a covenant animal to ratify the covenant, which we just read about in Exodus 24, that ratifies that bond. Now you're committed. Now you're in it. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And he references the passage that we've just read. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle, and that's what is going to be created next, and all the vessels of the ministry, because they are involved in that covenant. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Okay. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the covenant animal, but not for the Mosaic covenant, for the new covenant. And the new covenant doesn't have a lot of do's and don'ts to it. It does have these universal things, no other gods, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't... Uh, be covetous, be covetous, honor your father and mother, and that, all of that. All it does have those, because those are always universally true. But it has one stipulation, folks: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant animal. Yes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You, God will make that covenant with you. And it's a covenant of life. And God comes to you not as the God on the mountain. God comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ to save you, to embrace you. God comes to you in the person of the Holy Spirit who is given to you as proof of your adoption and your acceptance with God. It's the same God as in Exodus, but it's now a God that can overlook all of your transgressions. It's a God who can look past all of your sins. And when he looks at you, he looks at you as a beloved child. And when you look at him, 
He's not a scary God on top of a mountain who you can't approach. He's a God that you can actually go right into the throne room of God in prayer as a son, as a daughter, with grace in time of need. You are accepted in the beloved. There is a whole world of difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, folks. And praise God, I'm in the new covenant. Praise God, we took these elements and these elements were proclaiming that we are not under this old covenant, that we are under the new covenant, this covenant made with us by a gracious and loving and pardoning God. Please don't. Please don't neglect what God has done. Please don't put yourself back under the old covenant and face God as a fiery God. You don't have to. He's done everything necessary for you to be accepted by him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, and you are gracious. You sent the Lord Jesus to die in our place to carry our sins. So that when you look upon us, Lord, if we've trusted in Jesus and asked him to save us from ourselves and from our sins, you don't see our sins. Lord, we know, we know we're not what we're supposed to be. We know that we still sin. We know that we still disobey. Uh, we struggle with sin. We understand this, Father. But we, one thing we shouldn't struggle with is our acceptance with you. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are accepted in Jesus Christ. We're forgiven in Jesus Christ. And that we can approach to you any time that we want because of his work, his merits, and because of the Holy Spirit who is within us. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for our participation in a covenant of salvation, a covenant of hope, a covenant of glory. And it's all because of you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name.